listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Let me say this. Take a minute, if you would, now. Share the broadcast. We're going to do something we've never done on the broadcast before. Um, We've talked about how to study the Bible. We've even put together videos with screen shares to show you my laptop and stuff as we're Uh, as I go through my different tools that I use to study the Bible. And if you'd like to see any of that stuff and you weren't around back when we did those Bible study videos, you can go to miracleword.com forward slash study. And all of those uh, videos are linked on that page for you. Um, So you can go through and see what tools we use uh, to study the Bible, how we use those tools in studying the Bible, And then I'm actually, uh, throughout those videos, sharing the screen of my laptop so that you guys can see uh, what the tools look like as we're using them uh, and which tools we have open at the same time, how it all functions together. And so if you want to go back and see that later, there's the link, miracleword.com forward slash study. Today, though, what we're going to do is I'm going to take you through a shorter book of the Bible. We're going to look at the book of Joel. Uh, three chapters, and uh, we're going to kind of do a live Bible study, and um, we're going to uh, kind of walk you through, and I want to use a tool uh, that we send to you guys, which is the Life Application Study Bible. This is one of the tools that we send out to people that are partnering with us, and um, I want to kind of show you, if you've never looked through this and seen how to use it or what it can do for you, uh, I want to use this today and kind of show you the benefits of what it is to have a study Bible like this um, and and kind of show you the benefits of of using that and what it means to your Bible study. Very important. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're turning to the book of Joel, the prophet Joel, right after Hosea. And um, Joel is one of what the Bible calls, uh, well, what what we've kind of categorized, the minor prophets. Morning, Edward. Uh, the minor prophets. You say, well, what's, what's the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? If you've gone to Bible school, you know, you, you study these different Old Testament prophetic books. Some are called major prophets and some are called minor prophets. Um, it really doesn't mean that the major prophets, what they wrote is more important and the minor prophets are less important. It really only has to do with how much content that they wrote, how much content that they wrote. So like, for example, if I were to turn backwards, Ezekiel, who's one of the major prophets, there's 48 chapters in the book of Ezekiel. Same Isaiah, Jeremiah, these are longer books. They, They are considered and categorized as major prophets. Joel is one of the 12 uh, minor prophets of the old Testament. doesn't mean that those are insignificant prophecies. It just means that the content is much shorter. So here we have Joel, which has three chapters in it. It's a very short book. Um, if you were to look, uh, at the Jewish, uh, Bible, uh, 
they have the same Old Testament books that we have, except they just categorize them a bit differently. And Joel, uh, within the Jewish word of God, would be categorized under the 12, be categorized under the 12, because there are 12 minor prophets. And so Joel's one of those. We're going to look at Joel today, and then we're going to uh, fast forward into the New Testament and, uh, and look at some of the things that are fulfilled from Joel in the New Testament. But we're going to kind of slowly go through this, and I want to show you how to get the very most out of your Bible study. Also, I want to show you how to do some things that will keep you on track when you're doing a Bible study. And finally, I want to show you what it looks like as a Pentecostal believer as you read uh, through the scripture. And I want to show you how uh, after you've done all the responsible things that you're supposed to do, that you also then uh, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the word of God and, uh, and, and allow yourself to be led by the spirit. Because obviously as Pentecostals, we believe that the Lord still speaks to his people today. If you believe that, throw a hand up in the comments section. You believe the Lord still speaks to his people today. Whereas there's other believers in different denominations that they do not believe that the Holy Spirit is still speaking to his people in that way. They don't believe that. They believe that the word of God, the written word is really all there is and that there is no more private revelation, meaning the Holy Spirit is not going to speak something directly to you. And so uh, largely these people are cessationists. They don't believe that the Holy Spirit is still manifesting himself the way that he used to in the Bible times um, and that that's all done. Miracles, signs, wonders, tongues, gifts of the Spirit, all done. All we have now is the written word of God. That's what they believe. However, we don't believe that. We believe there are still signs and wonders and miracles. We believe that the gifts of the spirit are still in manifestation. We still believe God's speaking to his people, leading and guiding his people through the voice of the Holy Spirit. So uh, we're going to read the Bible a little bit differently. Not that we uh, divide scripture differently in that way, but uh, we're going to look at the word of God and realize God's even speaking to me through some of these passages, speaking to me personally. I'm going to explain that difference uh, today as we go through uh, this Bible study, but take a minute to share it because this is a very big one. People are always asking, you know, can you do a Bible study tutorial? Or, or I have people ask me on the road, like, what's the best way to study the Bible? How do you start studying the Bible? Where do you start in the Bible? And um, I don't think where you start in the Bible is as important as how you study the Bible and the consistency with which you study the Bible. It's important to read the Bible every day. Now, let me, uh, Miss Ayel, what's up? Let me make a quick differentiation here. Um, I will say that there's a difference between doing, and these can overlap by the way, but there is a difference between doing just straight up devotional reading and Bible study. There's a difference between those. You could be just reading for edification. You could be reading for encouragement. You could be reading as your, your daily uh, fuel for life. I get that. That's just, you know, if you want to do devotional reading where you're not going to stop, right? So let's say you opened up Ephesians six chapters 
and you're going to read Ephesians before you go to work this morning. And you say, all right, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go through Ephesians. Well, you're not stopping. You know, you're just reading through it. Like you'd read through any book. You're reading through Ephesians to see what Paul said by the Holy spirit to that church. You're not stopping to do word studies. You're not stopping to do historical background checks. You're not stopping to do uh, topical studies. None of that. You're just reading the book at face value. Totally get it. That's devotional reading. And there, you know, you need to do that. But then there's the other side of that, right? So on the other side, you would have Bible study, Bible study. So within Bible study, and of course, there's different categories, as I said, you can, and and these are kind of covered too in our uh, miracleword.com forward slash study in those videos, but you can do a topical study of the Bible. What does that look like? Say, well, I want to study what the Bible says about love, or I want to study what the Bible says about tongues, you know, whatever it might be. You take a topic and you study that topic throughout the Bible. You could do a character study. You could say, I want to see everything the Bible teaches about the King, you know, King David, the life of David. I want to see whatever, everything the Bible teaches about the apostle Paul, whatever. That's a character study. You can do that too. You could do a word study and you say, okay. And sometimes these overlap like topical and word. You say, well, while I'm doing a study on love, I want to see what Greek words in the new Testament are used for love. You'd find agape and you would find phileo and you would find, um, uh, eros. And there's all, there's all kinds of different words, you know, so you go, you can see a word study. There's all these different things you'll find as you're doing these types of study. You could then do like what we're going to do today, a book study. You say, I want to do a deep dive and study the book of Romans or, you know, whatever the book of revelation. And you could do a deep dive study on a book. So there's different ways that you can do Bible study. Uh, you could do a doctrinal study and say, okay, I want to do a study on divine healing. Why do we believe in divine healing? What does the Bible teach for believers about divine healing? That's a doctrinal study. Um, we actually give you resources to help with some of those doctrinal studies, uh, with miracle word university. And that's why we have those courses available for you. Um, we walk through the, the doctrines of the Bible from a Pentecostal perspective. And so we have videos on the Holy spirit. We have videos on divine healing. We have courses on prayer, faith, prosperity. We have things for you to help you understand the doctrines of scripture. And so that's a resource for you to be aware of. If you've never heard of it, you've never checked it out, miraclewordu.com, you can check it out. What we're doing today is a book study. We're looking at a short book, the book of Joel, and uh, it's, it's, he's a minor prophet, uh, short content. We're going we're gonna to go through some things, and I want to give you some rules as you're studying the Bible that are guidelines to help you uh, understand how to take that and do a study of a, of a book like this. And then you look at it and then you say, well, what does it mean to me? But you don't ask that till the end. You don't pop up, open a book. And the first question you ask is, what does it mean to me? Yes, we believe the Bible's written to us. Of course we do. I'm not saying the Bible's not written to you. It is, but it wasn't originally written to you. So you have to figure out what was going on when the book was written. Uh, and you have to figure out the purpose and what, why the Holy Spirit inspired it. That's important. It's extremely important. 
uh, when you're studying the Bible. So we're going to do that. I'm going to give you some rules. We're going to walk through Joel together. Then I'm also at the same time going to show you the benefits of using something like the life application study Bible. I'm going to look at some of the tools that it has for each book of the Bible and how we would use them as we're going through something like a book study. So let's jump into that today. I'm in the book of Joel. If maybe we've sent you a life application study Bible, now would be a good time to break it out. Maybe you bought one, you have it on your phone or tablet, open it up and you can follow along. If not, I'll explain it uh, as we go. Again, two books that I would recommend um, for your Bible study. Number one, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's a great book. It will help you to learn how to study the Bible. Another one that I've been reading, I thought I'd read it. I hadn't, so I went back and read it. Uh, It's a book that's recommended in the book I just mentioned, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And this book is literally titled, how to read a book. That's what it's called. How to read a book. And so there are, there are some rules, right? So, um, we're going to break some of those down for you today and help you to understand them. Uh, let me just read you, uh, maybe eight of the rules just quickly. I'm going to do an overview so that you can kind of see the mindset of what it looks like as we go into reading any piece of literature, but these can be applied to the Bible as well. Uh, First of all, classify the book according to kind and subject matter. So classify the book according to kind and subject matter. All right, well, we look at the book of Joel. How would we classify the book of Joel? Well, first of all, we know it's a prophetic. It's a prophetic book. We're reading this as prophecy. We understand that this is not a poetic book. It's not really necessarily considered a historical book. It's, there will be narrative in it, but it's not considered a narrative like the book of Acts. Joel is prophecy. And so we're going to look at that, uh, for, for what, for what it is. Did you need the, um, did you know the author for this one? The author of how to read a book, uh, Mortimer J. Adler and Charles Van Doren, Mortimer J. Adler. You can tell these are like names from the thirties because nobody, nobody names their kid Mortimer anymore. Mortimer, (laughs) maybe they should Mortimer J. Adler and Charles Van Doren. So we can classify Joel as prophecy. Um, Then number two, uh, state what the book is about in in as short a period of time as you can. You know, if you were to, if somebody was to walk up to you and say, hey, I know you're a Christian. I was just wondering, what's the book of Joel about? Could you explain to them in a very short, maybe a few sentences, what the book of Joel is about? If you can't, it's either because you haven't read it or you read it, but didn't fully understand or take in the purpose of the book of Joel. So if somebody walked up and said, Hey, what's the book of Joel about? You should within two or three sentences, be able to tell them what the book of Joel is about. Number three, you've got to be able to number its major parts in their order and relation, basically an outline. 
you should be able to outline the book of Joel and say, look, here's where he breaks these things down. This is what it's about. Here's how they break it down. Here's the nice thing about what I'm reading you right now. The life application study Bible and other study type Bibles, they do these things for you already. A group of scholars that have gotten together and created study Bibles are doing these basic things ahead of time. So that as you, that's why it is a study Bible, because they know as you're doing Bible study, these are very important facts to have. And so instead of you having to do them, they do them for you. And uh, sometimes it's good to compare several study Bibles and say like, are they agreeing about these things? You know what I mean? So number three, number its parts, do a, do a outline of the book. Number four, define the problem or problems that the author's trying to solve. So for example, the question we ask uh, ourselves is like, okay, obviously, because as you're going to see, Joel's giving warnings. He's giving warnings to God's people. Oh, well, then there's a problem. If Joel is prophetically warning people about something, there's a problem. So what is the problem? That's, that's what we want to find out. Why did he write this? Why did he prophesy? Why did the Holy Ghost come upon him? There was obviously a problem with God's people. So what is it? And, and you have to be able to know that because when you're knowing, when, when you're reading through and you do know that, it's going to help you as you're defining what you're reading in that book. And you're going to say, oh, I see. I can, and this is also going to help you, by the way, when you go then at the end and say, what does all this mean to me? Right? Because one of the ways it's going to help us is we're going to see, we're going to look back and say, oh, I see. Here's what God's people did that angered him, that irritated him, that really uh, caused a prophetic warning and judgment to come. And then the question is, how can I look at that and say, I'm going to make sure that my life never mirrors that. I want to make sure that I'm never doing what the people that Joel was prophesying to are doing. I'm going to, I'm going to take this as a warning to me, even though it wasn't written to me in that way. Here's how God does want us to apply it in the same way. We can see they were making mistakes. I'm not going to make those mistakes. I'm going to guard myself by reading a prophecy and a warning from a prophet so that I don't ever make those same mistakes that uh, Judah did. Okay. Define the problems. That's number four. Number five, um, come to terms with the author by interpreting his key words. Are there any key words Joel uses throughout his book? Are there very special phrases? Are there very special terms? If there are, we should probably be able to highlight those and say, well, this is unique to Joel. This is unique to Joel. He uses this phrase or he uses this word or whatever. You can mark it. You can write it down. Number six, grasp the author's leading propositions by dealing with his most important sentences, or in this case, verses. Again, the Life Application Study Bible does that for you. They will pull out key verses. They'll pull out key verses at the beginning when we're reading the intro to the book. They're gonna show you as you read through Joel, notice these key verses in the book. And that is doing this for you, which is what? what are his most important sentences? And that's number six. Number seven, what is the author arguing? Know his arguments. 
construct them out of a sequence of sentences that he's laid out for you. What is he arguing for? Okay, we know what the problem is. We've identified the problem as to why he's written to them or prophesied to them. But then the next thing we have to see here, which is number seven, is what are his arguments? So obviously because he's a prophet, Joel's arguing arguing on behalf of God. He's saying, hey, God is upset with you living this way, acting this way, speaking this way, worshiping this way, giving this way, whatever it might be. And so what is he doing then? He then goes to argue on behalf of God with what? Normally in the Bible, it's going to be, now this is, this is for any book you read, but we're, we're applying this to the Bible. God's going to give them instructions. So he's, he's not just arguing for what he wants. He's saying, here's now what I exactly what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. This would solve your problem. So what's the author arguing for? And on behalf of God, what's he saying? And then number eight, um, you can, uh, you can see this. And sometimes you in the Bible, you won't be able to see it in the way the books are, are written, but sometimes you can determine which of the problems the author has solved and which he has not. And of the latter decide, uh, which the author knew he had failed to solve. So <clears throat> it's really an interesting thought here because like, look, for example, look at the book of Jonah, right? What if we looked at Jonah and this is point number eight. What a, Jonah, okay, we know God is calling the people of Nineveh to repentance, right? And he's dealing with Jonah who wants nothing to do with that. He wants the people of Nineveh to be destroyed. <laughs> Jonah's like, yeah, I'm not going. Take them all out. Kill them. Kill them, God. I don't care if they ever repent. I hope they suffer. That's where Jonah's at. And you remember the story. He refuses to go toward Nineveh, goes the opposite way, gets on a ship and goes another direction. I'm not prophesying. I'm not minister to those people. They should die. That's where his heart's at. God has to uh, intervene. He's swallowed up by a large fish and taken and spewed on the shores. And then he goes in. Now, here's what's funny. Then he goes in and he does what God wants, even though it's grudgingly, he still doesn't want to prophesy and, and, and speak and correct Nineveh, but he does it anyway, goes in, does it. And then, you know what he does after he's done? And we can see that there, you know, they, they call a nationwide fast. I believe even the animals fasted. They even made the animals fast and Jonah leaves the city. And he goes out and sits outside the city and just, he's watching, still hoping (laughs) that God's going to destroy the city. And as they're repenting, he's like angry that they're repenting. So notice what the true issue is here. Jonah's heart is still not right towards these people. Even though God has a plan to forgive them and a plan to spare them, and wanted them to hear the truth, God's man, Jonah, didn't want them to repent, held such a grudge, held such a grudge 
that he didn't want God to forgive them. He actually sat outside the city waiting to see if God would destroy it. And God has to do a a sign to Jonah where he allows, you know, a tree or like a plant to grow up behind him to give him shade from the sun and then lets the plant die. And Jonah, because he's no longer shielded from the sun, is ticked off that the plant died. He's upset that the plant died. And God kind of has to use that sign to say, literally, you have more regret in your heart that the plant perished, but these people were going to perish and you don't care about them. You don't even want them to repent. You want them to be destroyed. And so we end the book really with no resolution for Jonah. If you go read Jonah, there's not really, it's just, it's, it's proving a point, but there's no resolution. The last we see Jonah, his heart is still being corrected by God. So in that sense, if we were looking at number eight on this list, you say, did, uh, did this really solve, uh, what it was meaning to solve? Well, if you read Jonah, one of the major themes, in my opinion, is not just repentance for sin, but can you forgive people who have done you, your family or your race, your culture wrong? Because if you go back and study the history of Nineveh, Nineveh was a reckless and ruthless uh, city, capital city. And they would take God's people and uh, torture them and, and, and kill them. And that's why Jonah didn't want them being spared. He's like, look what they've done to my people. I don't want that. And he would rather. So one of the major themes is, can you forgive others for the things that they've done, even no matter how gruesome they are, right? No matter how gruesome they are, can you forgive them? And we, get, we really get to the end of that book and it's kind of up in the air. It just kind of leaves us hanging on whether or not Jonah's heart ever went, uh, was, was ever right in that way. But it's a, it's a point to be proven to us and God has to use a sign to him. And so you see that we can, at number eight, we can ask, did the, the problem get solved? Well, in that case, we really don't know if Jonah's heart ever really fully went that the way that it should have gone. So those eight things will help you. I hope you wrote them down. When you're reading any piece of literature at all, especially expository books that are trying to teach you something like a a business book or something like that, same rules apply to that. Same eight rules in that way apply to that. But now let's jump into Joel. So the nice thing that, as I was telling you, the nice thing about using a study Bible is that because these scholars understand the importance of those things that I just gave you, they're going to help you by kind of writing these out in the introductions of the book for you so that you can go through and see it. So let's break Joel down. It's only three chapters. Uh, I'm, we're going to read some, some of the, we're going to read the intro. I'm going to show you the tools, but then the other thing that I'm going to do with you, uh, is I'm going to, uh, show you some of the notes that I made from Joel as we do a book study and how we will read a verse. And then what I would have taken from that verse and kind of how I would make a note doing Bible study on this book. So they write an intro, the right, the, the compilers and the writers of the study Bible, the editors, they, they write an intro, which I'm not going to read. This is like their expository intro to the book, but it kind of opens you up to give you an understanding, uh, about the book. And those are good to read. So, uh, it's helpful. 
In fact, I will read half of it because it's not that long, but I, I want you to see like how they phrase this stuff. I'll start halfway down. This is the intro to Joel. Um, power, strength, might. We stand in awe at these natural human made displays, but these forces cannot touch the power of the omnipotent God. Creator of galaxies, atoms, and natural laws, the sovereign Lord rules all that exists now and that ever will be. How silly to live without him. How foolish to run and hide from him. How ridiculous to disobey him. But we do. Since Eden, we have sought independence from his control. As though we were gods and could plot out our own future. And he has allowed our rebellion. But soon, the day of the Lord will come. The prophet Joel speaks about this day, and it is the theme of his book. At that time, uh, God will judge all unrighteousness and disobedience. All accounts will be settled and the crooked made straight. We know very little about Joel, only that he was a prophet and the son of Pethuel. He may have lived in Jerusalem because his audience was Judah, the southern kingdom. Whoever he was, Joel speaks forthrightly and forcefully in his short and powerful book. His message is one of foreboding and warning, but it's also filled with hope. Joel states that our creator, the omnipotent judge, is also merciful, and he wants to bless all of those that trust him. Joel begins by describing a terrible plague of locusts that covers the land and devours the crops. The devastation wrought by these creatures is but a foretaste of the coming judgment of God, the day of the Lord. Joel, therefore, urges the people to turn from their sin and turn back to God. Woven into his message of judgment and the need for repentance is an affirmation of God's kindness and the blessings he promises for all who follow him. In fact, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Joel 2.32. As you read Joel, catch his vision of the power and might of God and of God's ultimate judgment of sin. Choose to follow, obey, and worship God alone as your sovereign Lord. So you can see there at the end, the writers kind of give you a practical application as you're reading through the book of Joel of what they want you to remember as you're reading these three chapters. All right, now let's break down. These are going to really help you. We're getting ready to do a book study on Joel. So what do we do? Let's look first at what they call a section on the side called the vital statistics. These are the vital statistics of the book of Joel. Number one, the purpose. So first of all, two questions we want to ask ourselves. There's nothing wrong with asking these questions. They need to be asked when you read any book of the Bible. First of all, who wrote it? And second of all, why did they write it? And thirdly, who were they writing to or to whom were they writing? If you're going to be a grammatical Nazi, to whom were they writing three? Let's answer these three questions right off the bat. Who wrote the book to whom was he writing and why did he write the book? All right. Well, we know who wrote it. Joel, son of Pethuel. Even though, as the editor said, we don't really know much about Joel, we know he wrote this book and we know that he was a prophet. Uh, So we know who wrote it. Joel did. To whom was he writing? Well, he was writing to the people of Judah, 
the Southern kingdom. So if you do any kind of Bible study, uh, you'll understand that Israel kind of broke apart. So the Northern kingdom was Israel and the Southern kingdom was Judah, the kingdom of Judah or the tribe of Judah. So at this time they were broken apart. They were not unified. Northern kingdom was Israel. Southern kingdom was Judah. He's writing to the Southern kingdom. So Joel wrote it to the people in the Southern kingdom of Judah. And what was the purpose of Joel giving this message that we now have as a book of the Bible to warn the people of Judah of God's impending judgment because of their sins and to urge them to turn back to God. So those are three very important things uh, that we've answered right off the bat that they give us in the vital statistics. Who wrote it, to whom they wrote it, and why they wrote it. Got to know those things. It's going to help when we start defining how we study this book. Very important. Now, another good question. When was this written? When did the book of Joel get written? According to this, probably during the time Joel prophesied, most likely from approximately 835 BC to 796 BC. Of course, if you're a, stu- a student of, of history, you'll understand that uh, before you know AD began, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, everything was BC. Sometimes Christians will say before Christ, after death is how they'll look at those years. But you obviously know that when it was BC, they were counting upward towards zero. So the year 835 would have been the past and then 796 would have been more future because you're going towards zero. Um, And so they're saying between 835 and 796, um, they can can tell, uh, Matt Renzi has a great question in the comments. Why does the time really matter? How can they tell, just curious a bit. they can tell for a few reasons. They can tell because sometimes there's um, historical data listed within the book. For example, who was king at the time? Who was king in Judah? Who was king in Israel? Um, you know, for another one that I just mentioned, was the kingdom split apart at the time it was written? Was there Israel and Judah or was there a unified Israel? Uh, these, little, these little things can give us clues Also, when the manuscripts that we have were discovered, you know, things like that, they can give us some, some clues as to what point in history, uh, was this written? Also the contemporaries of this prophet, who are the contemporaries who were alive and prophesying at the time Joel was prophesying. Well, one of the cool things that the life application study Bible does, Matt, is that it gives us a timeline at the very bottom that looks like an actual timeline. So if I read the one that's written on the Joel page, it gives us this timeline. It says in 853 BC, King Ahab dies in batter, battle. In 848, just five years later, Elisha becomes a prophet. In 841, Jehu becomes king of Israel. Athaliah seizes Judah's throne. In 835, Joel becomes a prophet and Joash becomes king of Judah. In 814, Jehoaz 
uh, Jehoahaz becomes king of Israel. In 798, Jeho- uh, Jeho- uh, Jehoash becomes king of Israel. And 796, with a question mark, because it's approximate, Joel's ministry ends. So we can see timeline. We can, we can compare history, right? So we know historical things that were happening throughout history because of other books too. First and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. We see these things about Elisha and Elijah and what was going on in the world at that time, right? So that's kind of how we can tell when the book was written. Why does it matter? Well, it, it will definitely matter when you're starting to look at things that are going on uh, in regards to, <clears throat> for example, as we're going to get into with the book of Joel, um, at the time that they were being rebuked, it was because at that time in history, there was a great uh, influx of prosperity in Judah. And one of the things that we're going to see as we read these warnings is that the influx of prosperity in that time of history started to cause the people to depend more upon their possessions, their money, their crops than on the Lord himself. We start to realize that at that time in history, there was so much uh, happening that was beneficial for Judah and Israel that it was causing them to fall away from God. And that, that, that's helpful on the timeline to know as well that there was definitely prosperity going on. So these facts are all pertinent as we study the Bible. Let's go on. That's when it was written. Now it gives us the setting. Um, here's the setting, as I just kind of uh, paraphrase to you. Here's the setting uh, for the book of Joel. The people of Judah, the southern kingdom, had become prosperous and complacent. And they were taking God for granted. And they'd turned to self-centeredness, idolatry, and sin. And Joel warned them that this kind of lifestyle would inevitably bring God's judgment. And so isn't this interesting to you? Let me just make a little inference here. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of their complacency, their sin, uh, lightheartedness, turning away from God, rather than God just showing up and blasting them, just he could have because they were in sin. But instead of God just showing up and blasting them, he sends the prophet Joel to warn them. You know why? He loved them. He loved them. This is also, by the way, if we're taking, if we're taking some things that we can do at the end, if we're taking some things out of the book of Joel for ourselves in this New Testament church, one of the things that we can look at is the nature of God. That even before the blood of Jesus was shed, in an Old Testament setting, God loved these people so much that when he had the right to just blast them with judgment, he first sent a prophet to warn them. Why did he do that? Because he loves them and wants them to turn from their wicked ways. So he gives them opportunity after opportunity and chance after chance to repent from sin and to come back to him. That is a picture of the mercy of God and the love of God. And we can know his nature. Now, here's a very cool thought. Because we know that Malachi spoke and wrote from God, I am the Lord, your God. I do not change. I do not change. 
the nature and characteristics of God, the attributes of God are unchanging, totally unchanging. Here's why that's encouraging that if we look back to the book of Joel and we see that God had such mercy and such love for his people that even though they were in the midst of rebellion, that he sent warnings, he sent the prophet. He didn't just judge and destroy them. He gave them opportunity after opportunity to repent and to come to him. And if he doesn't change, then that's still his nature today. He's still showing mercy. He is still letting the gospel be preached. Why do you think Jesus hasn't come yet? He's waiting, the Bible says, on the precious fruit of the earth, souls, the souls of men and women. He's waiting on the precious fruit of the earth. It's still the same nature. It's still the same characteristics, the mercy and the love of God. And it's powerful to see that in this setting. Now, uh, it goes down. I'll read you two things from the bottom. The key people in this book, Joel, and there's only two, the people of Judah. It's a shorter book. So we really have Joel, the prophet and the people of Judah. What's the key place? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And then finally, they give us two key verses. This is one of the rules I read you at the beginning. Two key verses. And it's uh, Joel chapter two, verses 12 and 13. That is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he's merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He's eager to relent and not punish. Powerful. Very, very powerful. So those are key verses from the book of Joel. We'll go over those in a minute. Two more things before we get into the actual study of the book of Joel. They then give you a blueprint of the book. This is when I talked to you about outlining the book outlining the book. So really, because it's such a short book, the blueprint only really has two points in, if you were doing a book report, there's only really two main points to break down headings in this book. The first one is from Joel 1, 1, beginning of the book, and it extends to Joel chapter two, verse 27. And that one is the day of the locusts, the day of the locusts, which we'll get into in a second. There was an act, many, many scholars believe this was not metaphorical. There was an actual swarm of locusts that came in and ate all of their crops, devastated Judah, devastated them. And then the second heading, which goes from Joel 2.28 to 3.21 is the day of the Lord. So it's the day of the locusts and then the day of the Lord. Now, let me read you what they write in the blueprint. The locust plague was only a foretaste of the judgment to come on the day of the Lord. Here we find a timeless call to repentance with the promise of blessing. Just as the people face the tragedy of their crops being destroyed, we also will face tragic judgment if we live in sin. But God's grace is still available to us as we wait for that coming day, the day of judgment. So that's the blueprint of the book of Joel. So what Joel does is this tragedy of the day of the locusts was like a prophetic sign 
that Joel was able to point to and say, see that, see how that happened to your crops. See how quickly your prosperity can disappear. See how quickly your blessings and your material possessions can disappear. And you put your trust in them. You put your trust in your crops and in your paneled homes and in your money and your economy. Look in one day and however long it took for the locusts to eat through in one day, it's all gone. And that's what you've been trusting in. That's what you've been putting your faith in and it disappears. And then he uses the locust swarm, the plague as a sign, a prophetic sign to say, just like this happened, guess what? The day of the Lord is also going to happen. Judgment is coming. It's a warning. You see this, this is, and if you think this is bad, this is just a foretaste of what's getting ready to come with the day of the Lord. And that's what he's telling the people of Judah and Jerusalem is that you better turn your heart back to God. You better turn your heart back to God because the day of the Lord is coming. And so the final thing in the, in the intro that we want to go over, uh, is the mega themes. This is really great. And especially, uh, if you were ever going to do, uh, something like this for like a small group setting, I think this is great because, um, it's like, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you had kids, but have you ever like read a popular book with your kids, something that maybe was, uh, I mean, we did this in school as well. It's like, I remember when I was in, in high school, they had us read the ever popular novel to kill a mockingbird, raise your hand in the comments. If you were ever made to read to kill a mockingbird. And we read that, um, who wrote that Harper, Harper, Harper Collins or something Harper. Harper Collins, is that a publisher? <laughs> it might be a publisher, but wasn't it something Harper or Harper something? Anyway, uh, to kill a mockingbird. And then what did we do as a class? Huh? Harper Lee, Harper Lee. Um, we, you, people read it, people throwing their hands up. So what did we do as a class? Well, we read, uh, to kill a mockingbird. And then the class, then after reading and going through uh, all of our uh, book reports on it or whatever else we did, what did we then do? Then we came together as a class and we discussed racism, right? We discussed culture. We looked at the book, the piece of literature that was shining a light on something, and we took the mega themes out of the book and we started to, we started to discuss what the book was trying to bring out at the time about culture. So we would, we would then discuss the mega themes of the book and what it meant to us in society today and all that. That's what this is doing. It's giving you mega themes uh, of the book of Joel. And of course, as you go through the study Bible, every book in the Bible, but here, uh, in the book of Joel, we see three mega themes that kind of run through the book. The first is punishment, punishment. The second forgiveness and the third, the promise of the Holy spirit. So let's, let's quickly read it. For, for example, number one, punishment. Like a destroying army of locusts, God's punishment for sin is overwhelming, dreadful, and unavoidable. When it comes, there will be no food, no water, no protection, and no escape. The day for settling accounts with God for how we have lived is fast approaching. One day we will have to reckon with God, not nature, not the economy, or a foreign invader. We cannot ignore God or offend God forever. We must pay attention to his message now or we'll face his anger later. So that's the mega theme of punishment. 
Number two, forgiveness. God stood ready to forgive and restore all those who would come to him and turn away from sin. God wanted to shower his people with love and restore them to a proper relationship with him. Forgiveness comes by turning from sin and turning toward God. It is not too late for you to receive God's forgiveness. God's greatest desire for you is that you come to him. So that's the mega theme of forgiveness. And then finally, the promise of the Holy Spirit, because we have to remember this, uh, Joel is a prophet. And so he's not just speaking to uh, Judah and Jerusalem about what has happened and what's going to come, but then he speaks way out into the future, speaks way out into the future about 800 years and something later. He gives a prophecy that won't come to pass for another 800 and something years. And it's the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. So let's read that final mega theme. Joel predicted the time when God would pour out his Holy Spirit on all people. It would be the beginning of a new and fresh worship of God by those who believe in him, as well as the beginning of judgment for all who reject him. God is in control. Justice and restoration are in his hands. The Holy Spirit confirms God's love for us just as he did for the first Christians. We must be faithful to God and place our lives under the guidance and power of his Holy Spirit. Agreed. Agreed. Now, just, just in case anybody's like a very baby Christian that's watching this, we don't read these introductions and the stuff that's just because it's on the pages of the Bible we're holding. We're not reading these things as inspired by God. They're not scripture. They're written by man. They're the expository or, or paraphrases of man. We don't look at this as the same as scripture. It's just a, it's a help. It's a guide. That's all it is. It's a help and a guide. But then we start to get into um, the actual uh, book of, of Joel chapter one, verse one. I want to just take you through and just show you some of the notes kind of that I've made and, um, and just kind of show you how I'd make some basic notes through the book of Joel. So we start to read and, uh, Joel's talking about the day of the locusts. Let's start with verse one. I'll go to verse five and I want to show you the, the notes that I've made here. The Lord gave this message to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you leaders of the people. Listen, all you who live in the land, in all your history, has anything like this ever happened before? Tell your children about it in the years to come and let your children tell their children. Pass the story down from generation to generation. After the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locusts took what was left. After them came the hopping locusts and then the stripping locusts too. Verse five, wake up you drunkards and weep, wail all you wine drinkers, all the grapes are ruined and all your sweet wine is gone. So here's a note you could make, Joel 1.5, Joel warned Judah that their complacency and dulled or of their complacency and dulled morals, Judah had become wealthy. Never let material abundance hinder spiritual readiness and spiritual hunger. So, of course, as we read this, let me, let me break this down. We don't think it's wrong to have increase. We don't think it's wrong to be prosperous. We don't think it's wrong to have more than enough. We preach that. 
We're not being confused by what's going on here. What we're seeing with the people of Judah and Jerusalem is the same problem that we see in Matthew chapter 19 with the rich young ruler. What's that problem? He didn't have riches. Riches had him. We go and read what Jesus taught in Matthew six about money. And the Bible says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You'll love one and hate the other. And so you have to love God. What happened to these people is that they allowed the blessing of the Lord to become their Lord. The people of Judah and Jerusalem allowed the blessing of the Lord to become their Lord. And as a result, they forgot about God. They forgot about worshiping him. They forgot about serving him. They became complacent and they grew cold and they stopped caring. That is the warning. The warning is as God blesses you, as God continues to increase you, keep him as your focus, not the money, not the car, not the house, not the job. Don't get a great job and then stop attending church on Sunday morning because you've got this job that now you make a lot of money on and you're prioritizing it over God. It's like the kind of warning Joel's giving them. You've allowed your crops and your homes and your wealth to become uh, your God and you got complacent, you got cold and God notices, God notices. I heard Pastor Adeboye say something one time that I thought was powerful. He said, God doesn't just check on you to see how you react when an attack is coming against you. He checks on you to see how you react when everything's going great and the blessings on you and you're overflowing and you're increasing. God's checking on you then too, to see how you respond to him when everything's going right. Are you still praying? You still reading his word? You still fasting? You still pressing in even though you're blessed, even though you got more than enough, or do you wait until there's a crisis to go seek after God. See what I mean? And that's what Joel's warning them. You allowed your prosperity. You allowed your increase. You allowed the more than enough to make your heart grow cold. That's a warning. We keep on reading. Weep versus this verses eight and nine. Weep like a bride dressed in black, mourning the death of her husband for there's no grain or wine to offer at the temple of the Lord. So the priests are in mourning and the ministers of the Lord are weeping. I made this note because of the negative progression brought on by Judah's complacency, their crops were utterly destroyed. As a result, there was no flour to make grain offerings to God. There was no wine to make drink offerings. And when we remove God's centrality, the devastation that ensues ensures that we cannot properly interact with God like we once did a self-sustaining downward spiral. Think about that. The fact that they trusted in their crops and in their riches. What is that? Something in my hat. That's like in my eyes. It took out their crops, which meant you can't then give offerings to God. Notice what's happening. If this is being destroyed, now my resources aren't coming in, then I can't even interact with God properly. So now one level of displeasing him has expanded to multiple levels of displeasing him. See what I mean? So we got to watch that. Verse 12, the Bible says the grapevines have dried up and the figs of the trees have withered and the pomegranate trees, the palm trees, the apple trees, 
The fruit trees have dried up and the people's joy has dried up with them. Hmm. Listen to this note I made. The joy stemming from the prosperity which accompanies serving the Lord quickly disappears when we stop making him our focus. He's the source of all that's good in our lives. Without his assistance, the blessing dries up. Without God's assistance, the blessing dries up. I want you to put this in the comments. Without God's assistance, the blessing dries up. Very important. Give you verse 14. Listen to this. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the people of the land into the temple of the Lord your God and cry out to him there. Um, I put this in my book that I released at the beginning of the year on fasting, the complete guide to biblical fasting. I wrote in there that one of the purposes of fasting, like you can see here, is mourning sorrow for sin, mourning and repentance, sorrow for sin, mourning and repentance. It's, it's a way to show God the sorrow you have for sin. And they used to do it all the time in the old Testament, all the time. It's what they did in Nineveh. As I said at the beginning, when Jonah uh, preached to them, they called a national fast. And I believe even the animals fasted. They made the animals fast to show God their sorrow for sin. When, without God's assistance, the blessing dries up. So look at this, uh, verse 14, I made a note. Instead of waiting for a time of calamity to fast, pray, and seek the Lord, continue a life of dedication, especially as God continues to bless you. This is preventative rather than responsive. That's big to understand. I'm doing these things preventatively versus in response to a problem. I'm not going to wait to fast and pray until there's a problem. Not going to wait to call out on, on God to God till there's a problem. I'm going to do it ahead of time. When things are going great, I'm going to fast and pray. When I've got more than enough, I'm going to study God's word and get into his presence. I'm going to make this a continual lifestyle and ensure that I never get here. See what I mean? Now let's move on. Chapter two. The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. He's, this is talking about, let me give you the context, the locusts that are coming through. The locusts that are coming through. It says that the Lord's doing it. This is his mighty army. And they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? Verse two or chapter two and verse 11. Here's the note. This ver and I wrote, th these are notes that I wrote, not in the study Bible. This verse confirms that what was happening to Judah and what will happen on the day of the Lord was not a random accident. The locusts didn't accidentally come and eat the crops or an attack of the devil. This wasn't an attack of the devil. Well, the locusts came and ate up all their crops. The devil was attacking Judah, not according to the Bible. Listen to it again. This is God's mighty army. They follow God's orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? God reserves the right to punish sin as he sees fit. The locusts were his army and carrying out his commands as a result of Judah's disobedience. Shows you the power of God. And I know there's Pentecostals that have a problem with this thought process. 
Well, God didn't really do that to Judah. He just allowed it to happen. Not according to the Bible. He did it actively. They followed his commands. They were his army, the the locusts. He did it. You know, we, we have this weird uh, way of interpreting scripture as charismatic Pentecostals that like, unless it's good and happy and bubbly, God didn't do it. Let me ask you a question. When God led Pharaoh and his army into the bed of the Red Sea and then personally closed the water down on them and killed every last one of them who had families, they had wives, they had children, the dad's never coming home again, wife will never kiss her husband again. He destroyed every last soldier and Pharaoh himself and their animals. Was that an attack of the devil? Or did God himself destroy those people? God did it. God did it. Michael says, how can we tell something is a judgment or if it's an attack? How can we tell if it's a judgment or an attack? God will never judge his people, his New Testament people, Christian people, with what he has redeemed them from. So, for example, um, God's never going to judge you by leading you into a, a life of deeper sin. Why? He redeemed you from sin and you, sin is no longer your master, Romans chapter 6. He's never going to judge you by putting sickness on your body. Why? He redeemed you. Christ redeemed you from sickness. Christ did that. Christ is the one. For example, if you look at the ministry of Christ, you'll never find one evidence in the new Testament of Jesus Christ meeting a sick person who wanted healing and then saying to them, well, I would heal you, but I can see that my father has brought this sickness upon you for a reason. And because it's his purpose for your life, I can't heal you. I got to let you deal with this because it's his judgment. He's showing you something. He's teaching you something. No, he always treated sickness as an enemy and he always healed sickness and cast out devils. The Lord will never send a demon to attack you. You understand the Lord will never send a demon, uh, to harass you as a judgment upon you. Does he doesn't do that? God has no relationship with darkness. Second Corinthians chapter six tells us that plainly, what relationship can there be between God and the devil? What relationship can there be between light and darkness? And that's why Paul's telling them just as God doesn't have any relationship with Satan. Don't you get into relationships with those that are unbelievers and be unequally yoked. So you understand that God doesn't use things that he redeemed you from as a punishment. Great question. And it's often misunderstood. Let me move further. Uh, chapter two, verses 12 and 13. This is what the Lord says. Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Now listen to this. Um, God is so great in mercy that even though Judah should have been justly destroyed, he called them to repent, not just going through the motions, listen, tearing their garments, but inwardly also tear your hearts. That's what God said, because I don't know if you know this, but in, in those times, people would do that as a sign that they were, uh, mourning something or something in great distress. They would rip their garments 
in their culture, that was a sign that was an outward appearance. This, whatever's going on right now is so grieving to me that I'm going to show you by tearing my garments up. That was a sign, but that was the outward appearance that was going through the motions for some people that just became a religious thing that they did. And that's why God called them out on it through the prophet Joel. He said, don't just tear your garments. Like you are going through the motions. Don't come to church, just lift your hands and sit down, listen to a message and go home. And you still live the same way you always did. Don't just go through the motions. I want it to be inward. So don't just tear your garments, tear your hearts, tear your hearts. What does that mean? Make your repentance real. Make your repentance real. That's what God's getting into into their heads. Make your repentance real. I don't want lip service. I don't want outward emotion. I want to see it real in your heart. See, because you can, you can trick men, but you can't trick God. You can trick men, but you can't trick God. You can look all holy and righteous to men, but you can't trick God because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Very important. Uh, I went on to write in the, uh, on the 14th verse that through repentance, your latter days can be greater than your former days. Just like Job's story, rather than leaving a wake of destruction behind you, he'll leave a blessing in his wake. I love this now. Look at verse 18. It, it switches now because now God's going to give them a promise of restoration. Verse 18, then the Lord will pity his people after their repentance and jealously guard the honor of his land. So listen, all true prophecy. Are you ready? All true prophecy. I've, I've, I've harped on this through Facebook prophets has an element of hope and encouragement attached to it. Joel shifts his message to highlight the Lord's blessings. If Judah will return from sin. And so if all you ever hear from some Facebook prophet is doom and gloom, doom and gloom, doom and gloom, doom and gloom, it's not true prophecy because all prophecy has an element of encouragement, exhortation to it. Paul taught that. And notice here, Joel steps into that. What does he begin to do? Talk about the restoration of God's people if they will repent. Powerful. So, I can keep going with these, but I want to show you one more thing before I pray for you today. We're coming towards the end of the second chapter and it, 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 now we get into the second header of the book, uh, which is the Lord's promise of the Holy spirit. Verse 28, then after all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike. And I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun and moon will become dark and the moon will turn blood red. On that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives and everyone who calls upon the day of the Lord will be saved. Now watch this. If we flip over to Acts chapter two, I want you to see how basically 
800 years later, this prophecy comes to pass. This prophecy comes to pass. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up as all the believers are speaking with tongues and men from all nations, Jews are hearing them speak in their own languages. And some are saying, no, these people are just drunk. Watch this. We're tying it back now to the book of Joel. Acts 2, and the Bible says, verse 14, then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. So now Peter is bringing to pass the understanding we're in the middle of the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied 800 years ago. Listen, and then he quotes Joel's prophecy. Just block that crazy guy. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I'll pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they'll prophesy. Notice what's going on. Peter jumps up and begins to prophesy that what you're seeing right now is a fulfillment of what Joel prophesied eight hundred years ago. Notice this. Peter did not take Joel out of context. This was not something that was wrongly done hermeneutically. This is exactly what it was meant for. This is the day that Joel was prophesying about the day when the Holy spirit would be poured out upon everybody. But let me give you another thing. That's really interesting about that. Let me give you one phrase that shifted everything. What did Joel say would happen? But more importantly, when did he say it would happen? Look at this. Verse 17 of Acts 2. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit. Are you catching this? The moment that this prophecy came to pass, it was the beginning of of the last days. So I don't know why anybody would ever argue and say, well, are we in the last days? We've been in the last days for 2000 years because Joel prophesied it. And then Peter confirmed it by the Holy spirit. This right here is the thing spoken by Joel. In the last days, says God, I'll pour my. So let me ask you, if anybody ever asks you, well, do you think we're in the last days? Be like, uh, yeah, we've been in them for 2000 years because the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it was the introduction, the beginning of the last days. 
And we are now, as I like to, as I like to say, in the very final moments of time, very final moments of time, Jesus is getting ready to come back. So you see, we're pulling this all out. So if we were going through, see now, I wanted you to see how, if, as we study these books of the Bible, uh, what is it that it allows us to do? Well, first of all, it lets us, it lets us read the book of Joel or any book that we're doing like this in context. It lets us not just pull verses out and cherry pick them and pluck them and then say, well, you know, this is what this means. Well, is it, is it what it means? Does it follow the rest of what's going on in the book? Does it follow the purpose of why Joel wrote it? Does it have anything to do with what's going on in why God himself? See, I don't understand why people have such a problem with this because, you know, men didn't write the Bible, God. I mean, I I dealt with that, I believe this week. Read 2 Timothy 3, read 2 Peter 1. Men didn't choose to write anything in scripture. God inspired it, he breathed it out of his mouth and the Holy Spirit carried men along as they were writing. So I don't know if people have an issue with like, I don't know why we go back and uh, we ask ourselves, you know, to who, why, who did they originally write it to? You have to do that because God's the one that wrote it. Men didn't write it. Is there an element that we can take out of it? Many times, yes. Many times, yes. But I've heard so many people abuse the scripture because they don't understand basic things. All right, I'm going to give you one more uh, really important thing because I told you I would. Um, how do we as Pentecostals then read these things? Well, for example, with the book of Joel, I would take several things out of this. Of course, you've seen it from my notes as a Pentecostal. Here's how I let God speak to me from, from these passages. Number one, it guards my heart against when God keeps blessing me, what do I never do? Well, I can look at this and see an outline of what to never do. Never put my trust in my riches never put my trust in my blessing, never put my trust in my increase and don't allow my increase and my blessing to pull me away from dedication to the Lord. Don't let the good life ever stop making me read my Bible, pray daily, be faithful to church, keep tithing and giving largely, keep preaching the gospel and spreading the gospel to those that don't know Jesus. I'll never allow the blessing to make me stop pressing in as they did. And as many other people have done, there's a temptation in your flesh to say, well, now that I've got it made, you know, you know, I've got a good job. I got plenty of money coming in. I can do all this stuff. You know, I don't need to press in like I once did because I'm now I've got my breakthrough. No, that's not the way to live. And Joel's book, his, his message to Judah and Jerusalem shows you as a Christian, even in the new Testament, don't do that. Don't do that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But when all these things are added unto you, you don't stop seeking first the kingdom of God. That's the point. Just because God blesses you, it doesn't mean you stop seeking him. Doesn't mean you stop seeking him. Thank you, Jackie, for sowing a seed. And you never let your uh, wealth, your resources, your money run your life or change your dedication to the Lord. Never let that happen. Never put your trust in the natural realm. Never put your trust in, in the government. Never put your trust in your nation. Never put your trust in a corporation. Don't put your trust in culture. Put your trust in the Lord. Lean on him. Lean on his word. He'll bless you. 
And if you never forget the blesser, you'll never not have the blessing. Let me put that, put that in the comments. If I will never forget the blesser, I'll never be without the blessing. If I don't forget the blesser, I'll never be without the blessing. Don't make the blessing first, make the blesser first. He's the source of all that's good. He's the source of all that's good. Now, you ask yourself the question, is it possible to have God speak to me out of the word and it be uh, something that I'm supposed to do personally, even though what I just read wasn't written to me? Yes, that's possible. However, let me, let me say this. That is not called Bible interpretation. It doesn't even fall under the category of Bible interpretation. It falls under the category of being led by the spirit. I'm gonna explain to you what I mean. It falls under the category of being led by the spirit, not Bible interpretation. And let me explain why. Well, first let me explain what I mean. I can remember when I was getting ready to go to Bible school, I was uh, praying about where I should go because I thought I was going to go where the rest of my family went, Zion Bible Institute in, in, uh, up, up, up in New England. Uh, my grandfather and grandmother went there. All of my uncles went there. My dad and mom went there. My cousin Jonathan went there. My cousin Jessica went there. Everybody in the Shuttlesworth family had gone to Zion Bible Institute. But I, through prayer and fasting, felt to go to Ramah, which was totally different. But I was reading the Bible and I was reading Genesis 26 and I saw what God said to Isaac, Abraham's son. You know what he said to him? He said, don't go down to Egypt like your father did, but go to a land that I will show you and I will be with you there and I will bless you there. Genesis 26, go to a land that I will show you and I will be with you there and I will bless you there. Well, as I was reading that in Genesis 26, that literally popped off of the page at me. Popped. Let me read it to you. Genesis 26, verse two, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you live. There as a foreigner in this land. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. I hereby confirm that I'll give you all the lands I, to you and your descendants as I promised Abraham, your father. So he says, don't do what your dad did. Do what I'm telling you to do. Well, that popped off the page at me. And I knew that it was the Holy Spirit giving me a word about where to go to Bible school, where to go to Bible school. Now, let me ask you a question in strict Bible interpretation, structure and rules. Is that what Genesis 26 means? Not even close, not even close. Where I go to Bible school has nothing to do with Genesis 26 whatsoever. One of the things that I want you to understand when you're interpreting the Bible, when you're doing what you're doing, what we did today, it has to be able to be given to any Christian and mean the exact same thing. So what I mean by that is if I was to, we just did this Bible study with you. But then if I took my Bible and flew overseas to Korea and did 200 people Bible study there, I got to be able to open Joel back up 
and use the same methods of interpretation and the same rules and the same laws. And we've got to be able to get the same things out of Joel in Korea for those 200 people that we got out of Joel today with you and me. Because Bible study and Bible interpretation rules are set in stone. There's a way to do it. It has to be universal to the believer, has to be universal to God's people. No, nobody, other people aren't going to read Genesis 26 and say, you know what? I read that. And that means I'm not supposed to go to Zion. I'm supposed to go to Ramah has nothing to do with that. So that's not Bible interpretation. That's being led by the spirit, being led by the spirit happens for many, many Christians and many, many believers. I know my cousin Jonathan has talked about the fact that, uh, the Lord spoke to him regarding his ministry and setting up his ministry. And, uh, he showed the scripture where the Lord spoke to him and said, uh, you know, to his people, build my house first. Don't build your homes first, build my house first, putting God first. Well, obviously the Lord spoke to him to do that and used that scripture verse to give him a principle upon which to base his ministry, which he did. And the Lord's blessed him abundantly. Why? Because he's obeyed the leading of the Holy Spirit. How did he get that leading? The Lord spoke to him through his written word, through his written word. And so as he was studying the Bible, the Lord used something that was already written, even though it was written to somebody else, to then speak a word to my cousin Jonathan's spirit personally. Now, that's not Bible interpretation. That's being led by the spirit. So here's the question. Can God use his written word to speak individual messages to his people, even though it's not the context of what's written? The answer to that? Yes, absolutely. He can. It's happened to me. It's happened to my cousin. It's happened to my father. It's happened to many Christians around the world because God can use multiple things to speak to you, multiple things to speak to you. And so, uh, can the Holy spirit use his word to lead you? Yes. But is that how you would then go and interpret that scripture for every believer? No, no, it is not. I don't open up to Genesis 26 when I'm at churches and say, now this verse means that all of you young people that are considering going to Bible school need to go to Ramah, not Zion. No, it doesn't mean that. But the Lord still used it to speak to me in my current situation when I was a teenager going to high school and he used Genesis 26, sure enough, to give me a word in my spirit that I wasn't supposed to go where my father went, but I was supposed to go to a place that God would show me and he blessed me there and he did. And he did. And so I want you to clearly see before we pray the difference between Bible interpretation and being led by the spirit. It's very helpful to know that. But now as you go through Joel, those three chapters, even as we went through today, you can clearly see, you could explain to somebody if they came up to you and say, Hey, I know you're a Christian. What's Joel about? You know what you could say? Oh, that's easy. Joel is about a prophet who was warning Judah and Jerusalem that because they had trusted in their riches and trusted in their economy, their hearts had grown cold toward God. They didn't worship him like they once did. And he was warning them that judgment was coming if they didn't repent. That's what Joel's about. That didn't take long, but that's what it's about. That's the gist of the book. And then you can take personal application out of that as we did. I'm going to make sure 
I never trust in my riches. I'm going to make sure I don't ever trust in my government, that I trust in the Lord and that I always press in and serve him diligently with all my might. These are principles. I knew this would help you today because there's, there's a, a ton of people that are like, how do I do Bible study? How do I read a book of the Bible and really take it in for myself? That's how you do it. Some of you may want to rewatch this and rewatch this. In fact, we'll add this video to the study page on the website uh, and we'll embed it there with the other study pages because it'll be a help to you guys. I know it will. But I want to pray for you today because one of my desires for the Victory Tribe is that, like me, you get a supernatural hunger for the Word of God, to read it, to study it, to fill yourself with it. I mean, this is my... This is one of the things that defines us as the Victory Tribe. If you ever went back and watched when I did in, uh, in uh, Texas on the, the nine things that, that define the Victory Tribe, one of them is hunger. And we've got a huge hunger for God's Word, a massive hunger. We study it. We take it in. We let it fill our hearts, our souls, our minds. And we want more of it. I'm going to pray for you a few things today. Number one, that God increases your hunger for His Word. And number two, that he gives you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That he opens your eyes to to see things in the word that you've never seen before. Thank you, Ben. And I love you and I want that to take place for you as it has for me. Let's pray. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray for your people today. I ask you that you would give them a, a, a supernatural hunger to read your word, to study your word. I pray that you would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Let the eyes of their understanding be enlightened to know what is the glorious hope of your calling. I pray, Lord, that in the last months of this year, as we study your word, we will see far more than we ever have in the history of our Christian lives. In Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, that you would open us up in the supernatural realm and give us leading and guidance. I pray that you would fortify our spirits. Let us be encouraged. Let joy come like it did for Jeremiah as we ingest the word. Let prosperity and success come like it did for Joshua as we ingest the word. Let health and strength come like the writer of Proverbs said it would as we ingest the word. In the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you. We give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Susan asks, Is the life application NIV a good translation? The one I read to you from today is the NLT, the New Living. That's the one we send out. Um, I don't think it's a bad translation. I've never, I don't really use the NIV. Uh, If I could buy this in the ESV, I would, but they don't make it. So the one that I have on my tablet and on my phone is the New King James Version uh, life application study, the NKJV. If I could get the ESV, I would, but they just don't make it. So a lot of times what I'll do is if I'm studying, I split screen it and the top half of the screen is my ESV text. The bottom half of the screen is my life application study notes in the New King James Version. But I don't think that that matters with the study notes themselves. They don't change. I think just the Bible text changes. Uh, so it's, it's, there might be a few little things in there, but NIV, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. It's just not a translation I prefer uh, for study. But the, the, I think that the life application notes are pretty standard throughout any of the translations they do. NIV, New King James, NLT, and I think there might be one other one as well. I want to encourage you 
uh, to stand with us in partnership. As I said, uh, the Victory Tribe weekend is coming and uh, it's for our partners, those that are standing with us at $85 or more. Um, there's very few seats left. I think less than 20 now, probably now that the uh, broadcast has been going. Um, and so we want to encourage you to stand with Carolyn and with me as we're touching our generation with the power of God. If you'd like to partner with us, you can go to miracleword.com, click the partner page. You can see all that we're doing there. You can fill out the form and stand with us on a monthly basis, $85 or more each month. Uh, whatever the Lord speaks to you to do, and uh, we say thanks ahead of time. Um, those that want to sow a one-time seed, you can use your credit or debit card on the website. All the ways to give are there. PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Zelle, hashtag donate. Uh, Cryptocurrency is available. You can use that to sow if you'd like to. And all that's available on the website as well. In the month of August, we want to bless those that are sowing $85 or more with Bishop Oyedepo's book, Operating in the Supernatural. This is a really Really great book, very powerful. You talk about a man who has operated and continues to operate in the supernatural. He's built the largest church building in the world and now he's building a larger one. God has used them to see many, many people saved and nations shaken. Um, this is our gift to you for $85 or more. To get it, go to the website, miracleword.com forward slash offer. Fill out the form, let us know where to send it and we'll shoot it over to you. This Bible that I've been using today during the study is the life application study Bible that we send to you. I sign it to you. It's our gift to you. Uh, for those that are sowing a thousand dollars or more as a partner, uh, this is included with the book that we're sending to you. Wonderful study tool. And then for those that are sowing $5,000 or more, we've got the elite study collection, which includes this and four other of the very best Bible study tools that I believe that are on the market today. I'm actually sending you three study Bibles that I think if you have these three, you've got really the best of the three. It's called the Elite Study Collection for any one-time seat of $5,000 or more. And uh, you see there five of the best study tools on the market, in my opinion, to help you go deep in your Bible study. Can you imagine this? Over 100,000 notes on the Bible. You could study for days and days and, and get more and more than you could ever imagine out of the tools we're sending you. Uh, we're just saying it and sending it to say thank you because we love you and appreciate you standing with us at a, at a very significant level. Again, uh, the Victory Tribe homecoming weekend is about fully registered. At this point, there's really only a, f a few seats left. Um, and so... If you didn't get your, or check in on your email or text that went out yesterday, check your spam folder as a partner, check your promotional folder. Uh, I also sent out a text to everyone that's on here first. This is the first in line. If you want anything we do first in line, it's coming via text first. We texted out yesterday and uh, we only have space for a hundred people and there's probably about 20 seats left. That's it. And once they're gone, they're gone. We will do a waiting list because we know there's sometimes people have to cancel. We will contact you on the waiting list. Uh, if you sign up, we'll have that after it's full, but we will let you know. But really it's filling up so fast. We had to get a bigger room at the hotel because we had to go from 70 seater to hundred seater. Uh, it's the very biggest that we, they would give us at that time of year. So um, if you're not yet registered RSVP and you're a partner, I would do so today within the next couple hours because it's, it's full. And once it's full, it's full. 
All of the details will be seen on the page we've sent you. Um, the Friday night is a revival service open to everybody in Allentown, Pennsylvania. That's on the 12th, Friday night, seven o'clock at Central Assembly of God, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And then the 13th is the luncheon uh, at 12 noon to three o'clock PM. Once again, we're not bringing children. We don't have any way to do childcare. The only exception would be like nursing babies. Uh, but children, uh, we don't have any way to, to, to accommodate them. So we ask, please, that anybody from your immediate family that you bring be 13 years old or older. And some people are bringing their teenagers with them, but that's what we ask you. I love you so much. Thank you for hanging with me today. We start Sunday at Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and then we're on to Washington, Pennsylvania. Then we're on to Albemarle, North Carolina. It's going to be a packed August. We'd love to see you, any of these meetings live, um, but I love you so much. Have a great day. And uh, again, if you want to rewatch this, rewatch it, take all you can from it. We will eventually uh, move it over as well to the uh, study page on the website so you have more tools to study the Bible. I love you. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.